Good morning again. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, 7 will be our sermon text for this morning. Uh, as uh, many of you know, uh, we began last week a short sort of mini-series on the role of the elder in the church. Uh, as we, as a church, enter into uh, later in the summer a time of, of nominating and then eventually electing uh, additional elders to serve uh, with David and Scott and I. And so we are looking at the elder. Uh, we looked last week at the role of the elder. This week we'll look at the qualifications of the elder. Uh, we'll also look at the elder's authority. And eventually we'll look at uh, the, the role of the deacon in its relationship to the role of the elder. Before we uh, read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, let's pray together. Our Father, we, uh, we come to you to hear from you, to hear your word, uh, to hear of your grace given in your Son, Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would give us uh, open hearts now, uh, attentive minds, give us the energy in the midst of the heat to be able to listen. Uh, we pray, Father, that you, by your Spirit, would speak to our hearts, that you would uh, guide us as a church as we think about leadership in the church, as we think about shepherds in the church. We pray that you would guide us by your word and spirit, uh, that we would serve you faithfully as a body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Timothy 3, beginning with verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Well, every organization has leaders. Every business, every university, every chess club, right? Every casual game of ultimate frisbee. Even when there are not official leaders, someone tends to rise to the top, to lead, whether for good or for ill. And those leaders shape the organizations and the people that follow them, again, for good or for ill. Leadership is really intrinsic to, to being human. Uh, at creation, God commanded humanity to rule over the earth. So leadership is not an aspect of the fall. Uh, it, it is an aspect of God's created order. Yet leadership can go wrong. And when leadership goes wrong, it tends to go very wrong. This is why choosing leaders wisely is so important, especially in the church. It's not only important for the church, but it's, it's even important for the leader himself. James tells us in James chapter 3, verse 1, 
that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Teachers, leaders, elders in the church, James tells us, will be judged with greater strictness. The biblical principle there is to whom much is given, much will be required. Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. See, elders are uh, overseeing the church, God's most precious possession. And they are accountable to handle with care. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, we have begun a series on uh, preparing us as a church to nominate and eventually elect elders. Last week we saw that that elder shepherds provide pastoral oversight for the church. The elders' ministry is the care of souls. This week we're going to talk about qualifications for elders. Um, May not be the most riveting thing you thought of studying this morning, but it is important. It's important for the life of the church and the health of the church. And so we're going to look at five things this morning. You can see in your bulletin, uh, if you turn to the back of your bulletin, there's an outline. Uh, There are five main points there. I know the main points, it's only increasing in number. Sorry about that. But uh, five main points. We'll go through some of them pretty quickly. Don't worry. Uh, We'll look at a qualification on all these qualifications to start with. Uh, Then we'll ask four questions. Why qualifications? Why these qualifications? What are the qualifications and, and how do you test them? Um, So first, this qualification I'm calling qualification on qualifications. Listen to these verses. Just listen to these verses for a minute. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. Or 2 Corinthians 3, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 4, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All right, what's the theme? What's the emphasis in those verses? Ministry is a gift. It's not earned. Uh, Paul was made a minister by grace as a gift. And like the gospel itself, right, we cannot earn salvation by works. It's a gift. We cannot earn position in the church. It is a gift. Qualifications, then, this word that we're going to be using can be pretty misleading. As if some qualify themselves or earn their way into ministry. And if we understand qualifications in this way, we're really misunderstanding Paul's letter to Timothy. But nevertheless, there are things which are necessary in order for a shepherd to fulfill his role. 
He doesn't merit that role. He doesn't earn that role. Uh, but by God's grace, these uh, qualifications equip him to fulfill the role that God has laid out before him. So qualifications. Okay. Number two, first question, why? Why qualifications? Why, why are there qualifications for the shepherding office in the church? And I'll give you four reasons. First reason, the shepherd is a Christian. Elders are Christians. That, that shouldn't be a surprise, but there's not a, there's not a two-tiered Christianity. Right? There aren't two different standards. One standard for, quote, normal Christians and one for elders. Every Christian is called to the same standard. In fact, most everything said here as uh, qualifications for elders is at some other point expected of Christians. And yet, it's only those who, who actually walk the walk who become elders. Well, why is that? Um, number two, the shepherd is not only a Christian, the shepherd is a model. The shepherd is to lead by example. So we want to elect men to the office of elder who, who we want our sons to become and, and our daughters to marry. Right? These are men, elders are men who set the pace in the church, who lead by example, who model. Oh, well, model of what? It's interesting, as you read through Paul's letters, Paul calls himself at one point the chief of sinners and at the same time says, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul is both a model of the grace of God received through repentance and faith and a model of zeal and service to Christ. He's not a model of perfection, but he is a model of, of repentance and humility and brokenness and zeal in following Jesus. And so the shepherd is a Christian and the shepherd is also a model. The shepherd is also a witness. Right, wrong, or indifferent, right? The world will judge all souls when it looks at me. Which is scary. Scarier for me than, well, maybe not. Maybe it's scarier for you than it is for me. Um, shepherds represent Christ to the world, right? They represent the church to the world. Now, uh, is that true of all Christians? Well, of course, right? That's true of all Christians, isn't it? Uh, but how much more of the leadership in the church? So the shepherd is a Christian, the shepherd is a model, the shepherd is a witness, the shepherd is also a shepherd. You know, these qualifications protect the church from, from spiritual malpractice. You know, think about it. You want your, your uh, medical doctors and your counselors and your lawyers and your elementary school teachers, uh, you, you expect them to be qualified, both in their field, but also in their character. Right? These are people who have intimate access to certain details of your life, who have certain intimate knowledge of who you are. And you want those people, medical doctors, teachers, lawyers, right? you, you want them to be people that you can trust. We want our shepherds to care for the sheep and not prey on the sheep. We want them to show Jesus' love for the church. And hence, Paul's emphasis in these seven verses on personal character. The shepherd is a, a Christian and a model and a witness and a, a shepherd, and so his character is important. Okay, that's, that's why qualifications. Third, why these qualifications? Why the ones that Paul mentions here? 
it's interesting, th this list, as, as we went through it, uh, there, there might have been, what, 14, 15 different qualifications Paul lists here. This is not an exhaustive list. Uh, for, for one thing, uh, in the book of Titus, Paul also gives a list of qualifications, and some of them are the same, and some of them are different. We might include other things in this list, like the fruit of the Spirit. Some of that is here, some of it's not. Uh, we might include uh, a man uh, full of wisdom, as the initial deacons were called to be in Acts 6, or full of faith and the Holy Spirit, as Stephen and Barnabas were called to be. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, Faithfulness is required of servants of Christ. And so uh, this list is not exhaustive. There might be other things that we would say, you know, really important for leadership in the church is this. Okay, so if it's not exhaustive and not meant to be, why these things? Why does Paul list the things that he lists? Uh, well, the, the answer is, as you read through 1 Timothy, what you realize is that there were certain false teachers in the church at Ephesus. And as we read through uh, 1 and 2 Timothy, we see that these false teachers have the exact opposite qualities that Paul commends here. So Paul is here correcting a problem, the problem of bad leadership in the Ephesian church. The teachers in Ephesus had brought reproach on the church by their behavior. They forbid marriage or forbade marriage, and yet they seduced women. They taught a different gospel. They were ignorant of the law. They were devoted to the teaching of demons, Paul says. They were uncontrolled. They lacked love. They invited quarrels. They pursued godliness as a means of financial gain. They were lovers of money, not lovers of the good. They were lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And see, Paul is responding to this situation in Ephesus with this list. He's saying, here's what you want your leaders to be like. And some say this list actually sets a low bar, that it's a kind of baseline morality. But there were men in Ephesus, uh, men in the Ephesian church, leaders and teachers, who by their life and conduct had brought reproach upon the church, by their teaching were leading others astray, and Paul wants to correct that. And so he emphasizes simple, upright character and basic orthodox teaching. 1 Timothy 4.16, uh, similarly, Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Again, simple, upright character and basic orthodox teaching. That's what leads to a healthy church. Okay, so what qualifications are we talking about? Well, I want you to first notice, as you look at these verses, what's not here. What's not here? What qualifications are missing? What might we add to the list? And I don't mean good things. So there are certain things that we would put on the list that God doesn't. And so one commentator says, uh, God does not require wealth, social status, senior age, advanced academic degrees, or even great spiritual gifts of those who desire to shepherd his people. See, there are some things that we would expect that God is not concerned with. One can obtain each of those things without godly character. Paul emphasizes personal character and orthodox teaching. We're actually going to look at this list under three groupings, though. We're going to look at the practical qualifications, the moral qualifications, and the, the vocational qualifications, or 
I, I want to use the word aptitudinal, but that's just way too out there. I don't mean attitudinal, aptitudinal, right? Uh, uh, qualifications that have to do with the elder's aptitude, <laughs> his ability, uh, uh, his ability uh, to function in his role. So we're going to look at practical, moral, and vocational. So first, the practical. There are two very practical qualifications Paul gives. Uh, the first one is the elder must be willing. Right? Uh, look at the first verse, 3 verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Uh, Paul has to say this because there were men in the Ephesian church who had given the office a bad name. They were ambitious and greedy and misused their power. Like televangelists today, right? They gave preachers a bad name. And Paul says, though, to the contrary, this is a good work. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 uh, that we're not to go into this work under compulsion, but willingly. Now, the point is not necessarily that you have to be ambitious, right, to be an elder. He's not saying your lifelong ambition should be to be an elder in the church, but you need to be willing if God calls you. If you're not willing, right, you shouldn't become an elder. You shouldn't let anybody force you into it or coerce you into it. The second uh, practical qualification is maturity. Uh, Paul says near the end of this list in 1 Timothy 3.6 that the overseer is not to be a new convert. Now, this is not an age requirement. It's not, he doesn't say an elder must be you know, 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever. It's not an age requirement, but it's, it's about the number of years someone has been a Christian. It's about his spiritual maturity. And his point is you shouldn't take a baby Christian and, and make them a leader in the church, regardless of other qualifications. You see, our temptation is if, if the man is, is a business success or a dynamic speaker, you make him an elder. But Paul says, let a man grow spiritual roots first, regardless of his gifting. Right? Now, he doesn't give a number of years. He doesn't say he must not be a recent convert, but he must have been a Christian for five years or ten years or two years or whatever. He leaves that to the discretion of Timothy and then to the discretion of us. But the point is, whatever number of years it means, the person is not to be a recent convert, but is supposed to have spiritual roots. That's it, the practical qualifications. Two practical qualifications, a willingness and spiritual maturity. Next, the moral qualifications. Uh, the, the ultimate idea here is that we want to find men who reflect the character of Jesus. Uh, under shepherds in their shepherding role represent the chief shepherd, Jesus. And so we could summarize all of these qualifications in, in one by saying that when we look at the shepherd, we want to see the character of Jesus. And so they can be examples to the flock and a witness to the world of who the good shepherd is. Now, that's kind of scary for me as soon as I say that because, uh, you know, as soon as I say under shepherds are to reflect the character of the chief shepherd, I realize how impossible that is, uh, how hopeless that is, and how much of a failure I feel at that. Of course, on the one hand, that's good. It's good because it reminds me of my need for the gospel. And an elder, if nothing else, must be a person who is constantly going back to the gospel, constantly relying on the grace of Christ, constantly seeking to be renewed by the Spirit. 
So what are the moral qualifications? He's to reflect the character of Jesus how? Well, first, in his own character, right? In his moral character. And so Paul says he's to be sober-minded. Sober-minded means, at the very least, mentally and emotionally stable. Again, this is baseline, right? Uh, You want elders who are mentally and emotionally stable. Uh, Not rash, not imbalanced, but clear-headed, sober-minded. The second Paul mentions self-control. And uh, he actually mentions self-control with respect to a number of things as you read through the list. Uh, We're to be self-controlled with respect to sex and substances and power and money. We're to be first self-controlled with respect to sex. Paul says that uh, the the overseer is to be a husband of one wife. Or uh, sometimes people translate that a one-woman man. Now, uh, this is maybe the the most uh, confusing statement in Paul's list, or most open to interpretation. What does Paul mean by uh, the husband of one wife or a one-woman man? Some people think that this means that an elder must be married, that you can't have a single guy uh, become an elder. Uh, There's a problem with that understanding, though, and that is that Paul himself was unmarried, and Timothy was likely unmarried, And, of course, Jesus was unmarried. So that would mean Paul is saying uh, that neither himself nor Timothy nor Jesus could be an elder in the church, which seems like kind of a strange standard to me. Uh, In fact, Paul commends the single life in 1 Corinthians 7 as a good thing. And so it would be odd for him to say on the one hand, hey, if you want to stay single, great, that's a good thing. You can devote yourself to Christ's work. And then on the other hand say, well, you're devoted to Christ's work, but you can't be an elder. That would be kind of odd. Of course, most men in Paul's day were married anyway, so if that's all this statement we're saying, it really wouldn't be saying that much. Well, other people say, oh no, that's not what it's getting at. It's saying that uh, an elder can't be a polygamist. He can't have more than one wife. He's a husband of one wife, a one-woman man. Though that, too, is probably actually not what he's getting at, though that would be included in what he's getting at. Uh, There's a similar phrase in chapter 5, verse 9. Of First Timothy, Paul is talking to uh, widows, talking about widows in the church, and he's saying a widow, if she's going to receive the church's care, must have been a one-man woman. Same phrase, just with uh, the reverse. Uh, well, there was no problem with women having more than one husband in that day. So again, it would be odd for him to say it must have been a one-man uh, woman if that were referring to polyandry, right, more than having more than one husband. So that's not what it's talking about. It's not uh, excluding polygamy, not because it doesn't exclude polygamy, but because that doesn't go far enough, right? That's not what Paul is getting at. I mean, really, is the only thing required of men in relation to their wives that they not be polygamists? I think there's something a little bit more. Hopefully you you think that as well. Okay, so what else is there? Well, another possibility. Some have said that is, it is a requirement for only being married one time. Right? You can't have been married twice. And yet, I don't think that's it either. Why not? Well, uh, for one, it's the false teachers in 1 Timothy who forbid marriage. The false teachers forbid marriage. Remarriage, uh, certainly after the death of a spouse, would be allowable. Young widows are encouraged to marry again by Paul in 1 Timothy 5. And so it would be odd for Paul to, on the one hand, encourage remarriage among younger widows 
if it would then later affect their one-man-woman status, should they be widowed again. And so if remarriage doesn't take away the widow's one-man status, remarriage shouldn't take away the potential elder's one-woman status. Have I completely lost you? The point is, Paul is not saying that uh, an elder must have only been married once. So what is he talking about then? What is he getting at? Uh, Well, he's getting at, I think, simply uh, sexual purity and marital faithfulness. That uh, uh, an elder must be a one-woman man. Paul is not talking about past sins here, whatever they might have been, but about present character. Who is the elder right now in relationship to his wife? The elder is to be self-controlled with respect to sexual purity and marital faithfulness if he is married. Second, the elder is to be self-controlled with respect to substances. Uh, Paul doesn't forbid the use of alcohol, uh, but he does forbid its abuse. He says the elder is not to be a drunkard. He says uh, of deacons something similar in verse 8. He says uh, deacons should not be addicted to much wine. Uh, Again, wine itself is not prohibited. Paul encourages Timothy to drink wine a little later on in the book. Um, Wine itself is not prohibited, but addiction to wine is. Not a drunkard, not addicted to wine. Again, the elder is to practice self-control with respect to these things. Third, the elder is to practice self-control with respect to power or authority. Paul says he's not to be violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And in the book of Titus, he adds, not arrogant, not quick-tempered. You see, men who are addicted to power, addicted to being in control, are not fit for leading the church. Uh, We're we're actually going to talk about the authority of the elder next week, that elders are servants, not lords. But the point is, guys, you know, when when we're quick-tempered or not gentle or quarrelsome, we are trying to control, to lord it over other people, rather than being patient and humble and gracious toward them. Paul says, don't lord it over, right? Don't try to control. Don't be quick-tempered, but be patient, humble, gracious toward those around you. Finally, an elder needs to have self-control with respect to money. Uh, The love of money, uh, Paul will say later, is a root of all kinds of evil. And so the elder must be free of the love of money, lest he fall into that evil. And you, of course, you know, all of these things with respect to, to, to sex and substances and money and power, you know how quickly things can go south. And if, if an elder is controlled by any one of those things, things will inevitably go wrong in any community. Elders are not to be motivated by any of these, uh, but their motivation is to be love for God and his people. As Peter says, uh, we're not to shepherd for shameful gain, whatever that gain might be, but eagerly for the good of the flock. So we've seen that an elder should be sober-minded and self-controlled with respect to sex and substances and power and money, but there's, there's one more thing about the elder's character, and that is, uh, Paul mentions in verse 2, that the elder is to be hospitable. Now, hospitality uh, shows what should motivate someone. Uh, hospitality requires a gracious, generous character. In that day, you didn't have easy access to good, uh, clean, honest hotels, 
And uh, some actually thought that it was part of the elders' official duty to provide food and lodging to church delegates and needy Christians. That may be reading a bit much into this, but the point is that the elder must be willing to offer up what is his for the sake of another in need. Stinginess doesn't make for a good elder, doesn't make for a good Christian, doesn't make for a good model, doesn't make for a good witness, doesn't make for a good shepherd. Generosity does. And besides, shepherding itself takes time. You know, I, as a teaching elder, happen to get paid for this work, but the ruling elders don't. So there needs to be a willingness for them to give of their time freely. So there's this requirement of moral character, being sober-minded, being self-controlled, being generous with what God has given you. But an elder needs to not only have a moral character, but he also needs to have a good reputation. He needs to have a good moral reputation. It is so important, Paul actually mentions it three times. I know we tend to, to uh, be wary of reputation, uh, and yet Paul says three times that an elder needs to have a good reputation in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end of these verses. He says the elder must be above reproach. That's the first thing he starts with. He says he has to be respectable. He says that somewhere in the middle. And then he says he has to have a good reputation with outsiders at the end. Why is the elder's reputation so important? Well, because he represents Jesus. He must reflect the character of Jesus. Again, you know, as I've said, that's true of every Christian. That's not unique of the elder. And yet, as leaders in the church, people are going to look at us and assume things about the God that we serve or about the church that we are a part of. When I sin, it's not just my name that's on the line. Now, uh, future elders, David, Scott, uh, I'm not saying that we need to be perfect. Uh, we will fail. We have a God who is gracious. But there is a line somewhere, isn't there? Um, there is a line where you say to someone, you know what, you're doing more harm than good in, the, in your witness to the world. I think because we love grace, we're, and I do love grace, but I think because we love grace, we're afraid to draw that line. But Paul wasn't afraid. He says the elder must be above reproach. That is, there's nothing in his life that, that a non-Christian could, could accuse him of, or a Christian, for that matter, could accuse him of. The elder must be above reproach. He must have a good reputation with outsiders. Why? Well, because the world smells hypocrisy, doesn't it? The world loves to point out when the church fails. This is one of Satan's traps, to bring reproach upon the church through the dishonorable behavior of its leaders. And so we have these practical qualifications of, of a willing and, and spiritual mature man. We have these moral qualifications of a moral character and a good reputation with those around. Uh, then there are also some vocational qualifications, qualifications that have to do with the job itself. Uh, again, there are really two sets here. There are people skills and teaching skills, right? People skills and teaching skills. First, the people skills, which is kind of like moral character part two. Uh, but Paul lists things like, that we've already mentioned, uh, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, managing his own household well. What's he getting at? Uh, the elder needs to be a man who knows how to relate to people, who knows how to handle relationships, who, who knows how to manage quote, manage people, manage his household. 
Paul says, if you can't manage this smaller flock of the family, how are you going to manage the larger flock of the church? Again, we're not talking about uh, some great degree of people skills, but just baseline people skills, right? It's important for the shepherd to know how to handle criticism, to deal with disagreements, to rebuke those caught in sin with grace, to encourage the downtrodden, to direct and guide uh, and release the zealous uh, to serve Jesus. If a man takes criticism personally or turns every disagreement into a fight or is unable to handle sin and squabbles, being a shepherd will be a challenge, to say the least. Now, of course, at the moment, only one of your three elders has children at home, which will be me, uh, and let me encourage you uh, to pray for me because I need it. Uh, pray for me that I would manage my household well, uh, that I would discipline my boys well, uh, that, that Christ would be at the center of our home, that his grace would be at the center of my every interaction with my boys, that shepherding in the home would be a training ground for shepherding in the church. That's what it's meant to be. So elders must have these basic people skills. And yet there's more than that, right? Because the elder also must have teaching skills. Uh, Paul slips this in in verse 2. He says the elder must be able to teach. He spends a little more time on this in the book of Titus, where he says the overseer must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, there are a couple things there in Titus. Uh, first, uh, the elder, the overseer needs to believe the word. Then he needs to be able to instruct in the word. And then he needs to be able to rebuke those who contradict the word. Um, last week, we said that uh, it's not talking about being a great order. But, you know, there are some basic questions you can ask, right? Do you know the Bible and the basics of the faith? Not all the mysteries of all theology, but do you know the scriptures and the basics of Christianity? Can you explain the Bible and the basics of, of the faith? If you have children, right, that helps because hopefully you've had opportunity to explain the Bible and explain the faith to your children. So you've tried this out, right? You've had some experience. Can you discern when others contradict the Bible and the basics of the faith? The elder is uh, primarily a teacher in his oversight. One of his main roles is as a teacher. And so Paul clearly emphasizes moral qualifications over the teaching credentials, but every elder must be able to teach. The calling of an elder is a, a gift of grace. That's where we started. No one earns it. It's not a reward for faithful attendance at church or something like that, right? Uh, yet, despite that fact, there are certain qualifications that must be met in order for an elder to fulfill his role. Uh, he, he is to be a model, a witness, a shepherd of the flock. And so practically, he must be willing, not a recent convert. Uh, morally, he must be upright in his character, sober-minded, self-controlled, right? uh, gracious. He must have basic people skills, basic teaching skills. And then there's one last question, which is, how do we know? How, how do we know if a man is a good fit for this role? Uh, how do you test these qualifications? And, and make no mistake, they do need to be tested. Uh, look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 10, a little further on from the verses we read. Concerning deacons, Paul says, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Let them also, 
also, meaning like the elders, let them also be tested first and then let them serve. Elders must be tested before they serve, Paul says. 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul expands on this. He says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. By laying on of hands, he means ordaining a man to the office of elder. He says, don't do this hastily. Don't be too quick. Paul says to Timothy, look, if you ordain someone to the office of elder too quickly, and that person makes a train wreck of the church, you are in part to blame for that because you're too quick in laying hands on this person. Okay, great. So then how do you know, right? How do you know who uh, is fit for the office? Paul goes on to explain it in 1 Timothy 5. He says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, it's obvious, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. How do you know? How do you test if someone is qualified for this office? Well, there, there are two ways, two things. There's the obvious and then there's the examination. Uh, first, the obvious. Paul says some sins are obvious, and so also with good works. Some good works are obvious. This is another reason an elder shouldn't be a recent convert. Right? You need time to observe. We want to elect men who have proven character, proven ability. So have you seen this person's character in action? Have you seen this person's abilities in action? I mean, just look around you, right? Many sins and good works are conspicuous, are obvious, are just in plain sight. And you can look at a man and you can look at his life and you can say either no, that person would definitely not be a good fit for the office of elder, or yes, look at the, that person's life. They would be a great fit for the office of elder. And yet some things aren't obvious, Paul says, and so it takes some examination. Paul says the sins of others appear later, or even that less obvious good works cannot remain hidden. And his point is that even when it, what is not obvious, with a little bit of an examination, you'll know. You'll know, right? Can you know everything about a man before laying hands on him? Of course not. Uh, but there, Paul is calling us to simple due diligence. We, we do what we can. We can't know people's hearts, but we can observe their behavior. And Jesus says, a tree is known by its fruit. And so you can look at a man's behavior, you can look at his life, and you can know a little about him, about his heart, about his life, by his fruit. All right, I've just said a lot, probably too much. That's what my boys will tell me later. Uh, but all this talk about elders and qualifications and office, what can I leave you with? Well, an elder, above everything else, must be a man who gets grace. An elder must be a man who gets grace, who daily takes his failures to Jesus, who lives out repentance and faith, who rests in the gospel, who strives not in reliance upon his flesh, but knowing his weakness, strives in humble reliance upon the Spirit to honor Jesus in whatever he does. So a man who gets grace, who lives out repentance, who humbly relies on the Spirit in order to make Jesus famous. That's what we're looking for. That's the kind of man we want caring for our church. Let's pray that God would raise up such men to join David and Scott and I in this role. Let's pray.
Our Father, it's so easy to get overwhelmed with all the details of this passage, passages like it. We pray that you would give us clarity by your Spirit. That you would help us to see the centrality of your grace at work in our lives. And that you would guide us as a church as we seek to uh, nominate and eventually elect men for the office of elder to oversee your church as shepherds, under shepherds of the good shepherd Jesus. Father, guide us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.